Hey everybody, this is uh, Mark Levine and you're listening to the 25th episode of the NYC Real Estate Podcast. We're doing things a little bit differently today. We're all working remote because of the COVID situation. So we're actually taping this on Zoom um, and then we're gonna upload this to hopefully YouTube and also to the podcast app, which you may be listening to it now. And I have as a guest today, Julie Schechter from Armstrong Teasdale. Hey, Julie. Hi. So it took you 25 episodes to finally get on the on the podcast. I wrangled you because you have nowhere else to go. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. So you're I, couldn't u- I couldn't use the excuse that I had a prior commitment today because nobody's leaving their house. <laughs> so you're an attorney and you do a lot of business um, or a lot of dealings in real estate, specifically call-up and condo, right? Um, and rental buildings, I'm assuming for landlords as well. Um, do you want to give a, a little background on yourself and how you came to be at your current position and, and what you specialize in? Sure. Um, I am a partner uh, at Armstrong Teasdale, which is a national law firm. I'm based in the New York office, um, and I'm one of the partners in the co-op and condo department. Our department is part of a larger real estate department, but our co-op and condo department has about 13 or 14 attorneys that do exclusively co-op and condo board representation. We represent over 400 co-op and condo buildings in New York City and the outer boroughs. And uh, that's pretty much what I do day in and day out is advise boards on uh, corporate issues. So out of those 400, how many are you uh, involved in? You, You touch a lot of those? Uh, I do. Um, So basically, our firm does it a little bit differently um, than other firms which have one attorney per building. We all work together on every building. So I know the majority of the boards on our buildings, and I've worked with them in one capacity or another over the years. I've been practicing for over 10 years, and most of our clients have been clients for longer than that. So I've had the benefit of working with most of the buildings a handful of times at least. Oh, very cool. So how are you guys right now? We're all remote. Everybody's remote. We're all set up at home. Uh, I think some of my- Well, I am reporting to you live from my living room, so. That's true. <laughs> I like the wallpaper. It's very nice. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, well, uh, I should say it's my parents' living room. <laughs> um, I'm assuming everybody in your office is also working remote and social distancing and keeping uh, everybody away from each other as much as possible, right? Yes, we are. So obviously we're managing buildings, um, you're representing buildings. We have the luxury of staying home, but a lot of the um, employees of those buildings, whether it's a super, a porter, a handyman, those are considered to be essential service employees and they're, they're on the front lines, if you will. Obviously they're not healthcare workers, but they are subject to um, more uh, possibility of having some sort of contagious disease fall upon them. So what we're doing is we're, we're equipping everybody with as much PPE as possible, protective equipment, and also uh, disinfecting as much as we can in terms of our um, call buttons and the elevator buttons and any common spaces that are touched, like the laundry rooms. And I'm going to go through that all kind of in what we're going to talk about today. Um, but where we have the luxury of working from home, they don't. So we're, we're always very, exactly. they still come into work and it's amazing. And, you know, they're doing the best that they can given the tools that we give them. Um, so I guess it's right now broken down with essential services and not essential services. 
Um, management, I think back office could be construed as a, an essential service. We're coming into the, we're working, but we're working from home. Um, my office actually is structured that if we wanted to have everybody come in, we could because basically everybody has their own office in my office and there's really no common areas. There's more than six feet where there is somebody in two off, uh, two people in one office per se, they're more than six feet apart and they're not touching each other. So, um, but we've chosen to just have everybody work from home and only my partners go in every so often to collect the mail and, you know, send it. We actually drop it on the doorstep of certain employees that have, right. to have their mail and we don't, it's no contact. And, and they well, just, you know, I agree with that. Our office, um, although everybody hangs out in the kitchen, um, our office is set up for social distancing if need be. But another concern of ours was how was everybody going to get to work? And most people need to take public transportation to get there. And so that's what we, we didn't want people doing. And so closing the office made the most sense to, you know, prevent people from having to take public transportation at this time. It's a short-term problem, but it's a long-term, hopefully keep everybody healthy. And That's right. Yeah, and money right. is one thing, but health is, you, if you have all the money in the world, it doesn't matter, but if you don't have your health, You've got nothing. got nothing. Um, so real estate brokers are considered to be essential. They, yeah, I'm not quite sure why. Uh, <laughs> I, I, think but yes. I think they're scared of the economic meltdown that would happen if, if sales and leases can't be signed and can't go through. Um, yeah, so. I think it's definitely driven by, um, you know, economic desire to keep the market going. But when the when this all happens, they're... Um, and they defined what essential and non-essential services were. Developers, you know, people who are building uh, buildings were originally considered essential and they were allowed to continue to work. But um, there was an interesting article in The Real Deal about how um, active work sites, you know, the uh, COVID-19 was spreading like wildfire because even though people were working outside, they were working in very close quarters. Right. And, you know, I saw Governor Cuomo on the news and he said he really regretted that decision. And a couple of days later, he switched it to a non-essential service and all construction services were shut down with very few exceptions. So Oh, I was um, jumping ahead. I was over eager. You haven't seen my notes. It's fine. Um, so even though real estate brokers are considered to be an essential service, we're still recommending that everything be done as much as possible through digital means. Um, the buildings, we don't, we've told every building that we manage, they shouldn't allow any open houses at all. Everything, if it needs to be shown in person, it has to be by appointment only. It has to be approved by management because we have to take the extra step to make sure that everything is disinfected and people are properly outfitted. Um, to make sure that they're keeping as safe as possible. The residents in the buildings don't want unknown people in the building. You know, it's one right. thing surrounded by 400 apartments and you don't know where everybody's going. There's a lot, obviously a lot of people that work in the health field. So they're coming and going, they're taking their precautions, but somebody off the street, it's just another chance for, you know, something to happen. And Redney has uh, also come out and said, you know, if anything, uh, it should be done through video walkthroughs or FaceTime. Right. That's a point that I was going to make. A lot of the brokers are coming into a building, doing one walkthrough with their cell phone, doing a simple iPhone recording. And then you have, you know, there you go, a virtual walkthrough. They're putting them up on the websites. Um, 
you know, on Douglas Elliman's website or Corcoran, whichever brokerage they work with, and then people from the comfort of their own home can view an apartment without endangering anyone in the building, without allowing for open houses. And the only risk on the building is allowing one broker in one time. So a lot of buildings are allowing that. And it seems to be a safe decision that still allows um, for sales and, and showings to go on. So it seems like a pretty good solution to me. Yeah, I, I think it's hard, but it's better than nothing. Right. And it's going to be the new normal for a long time. So people better get used to it. But, yeah. Um, all right. So I talked about uh, how we disinfect uh, for the staff, you know, what protocols we have in place. The staff is frequently disinfecting and we're taking care of all the surfaces. It could be uh, front door handles. It could be apartment door handles. It could be the elevator buttons, the laundry machines. Um, but we're also advising everybody to use something that could become a barrier with touch points, like use a disposable tissue or napkin to touch the buttons and then throw it away. Uh, this will stop, that'll stop basically people from, you know, just touching everything and spreading it all over the place. And, you know, we have some buildings that have obviously the disinfecting in the right. uh, lobby. If but, you could get your hands on uh, yeah, uh, Purell, then you have, we're recommending to put it in the lobbies, but it's become contraband. It's hard to even get your hands on it. I know. Personally, you see how hard it is to get anything. And then I have, I, every day I have boards saying, oh yeah, I believe getting us this, this. I'm like, if you can find it for yourself, you know, <laughs> we've got multiple orders out. If you can find it for yourself, that's amazing. Tell me where you could get it because we're going through every channel plus some that we've never used before. You know, we, Although we there, there was a recipe online oh. that I saw for making your own hand sanitizer if all else fails. Yeah, I think it was um, like aloe vera, aloe, vera. aloe vera and rubbing alcohol and, alcohol and essential oils. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we haven't gotten that far. I did for one building that you know of in Brooklyn. I ordered, I think, 116 ounce bottles of iso alcohol and aloe vera, but it hasn't been shipped yet. You know, it, it looked good until it came out to be like, oh, it'll be there in two months. Right, exactly. Oh. Right when the pandemic's over and you don't need it anymore. Exactly. Um, so we're also saying don't congregate, you know, keep your space in the common areas. If you're doing laundry, don't hang out in the laundry room, put it in, go upstairs, come back down, just try to- um, That's exactly right. And very early on in the process, what we advised a lot of our boards to do was to close common areas altogether. Um, you know, uh, there's, the governor came out and said that gyms are a non-essential, you know, non-essential service and all of gyms in New York were closed. They're based on the language of the executive order. There was some confusion as to whether he meant commercial gyms only or commercial and private gyms. But our recommendation to the boards was just to close them. Um, you know, there's not you know, there's no reason why someone should be sweating on a treadmill and someone should be on the treadmill next to them. It's just a very easy way for the virus to spread. And we were recommending to people, you know, even though everybody has a right to the gym that you bought knowing that you had the gym, we're asking for people's understanding um, and we're closing the gym to protect everybody. And our position is that boards who are responsible for the health and safety of the shareholders or the unit owners have in a case like this, have the ability to do that if it's in the best interest of everybody. And we really believe at this time that it is. Um, but another important uh, thing. Uh, oh, yeah. sorry. You, I'll, I'll step over here. You finish. No, I was just going to say if a board wants to protect themselves from liability after this is all over from somebody claiming that they absolutely were entitled to access to the treadmill and that they were deprived of that, 
is we're reminding boards to follow corporate policy. And if you're going to make a decision on behalf of the board, that decision should be formally recorded in a resolution and that should be reflected in the minutes of whatever meeting it was taken at. And that way, if a shareholder down the line wants to object to any of the board's actions, at least you will have formally adopted a resolution agreeing to close down the gym, for example. Um, one thing that we did mention to a lot of our clients is that management companies um, you know, took the, a lot of management companies took the lead on that and just sent out memos saying we're closing the gym, we're closing the community room without really consulting the board just because that was their management company's policy. And we completely support all of those decisions, but one thing that a board could do to formalize that is just have a meeting and uh, all vote in favor of uh, reaffirming the memorandum that went out from the management company as to closing the gym or closing the community room or any of the steps that were taken in a memo that was distributed from management. And it's a simple way of making sure that the board um, that the board confirms all of those decisions that were initiated by management. And one thing that we could also impress upon them is it's great for you to be able as a unit owner or a shareholder to use the gym but why don't we protect the staff members who have to then go in and clean That's it. another great point. Yeah, it's one um, less place for them to have the possibility of getting sick while they're at work. And we want to create a healthy, uh, you know, establishment for them to come to every day. That's right. Um, the laundry room is a little bit of a different story because people need access to the washers and dryers. But one thing that we've done is many laundry rooms um, in residential buildings have limited hours. Like for example, they open at 8 a.m. and close at 6 p.m. or close at 8 p.m. We've told buildings to just keep them open 24 hours. And hopefully that will help uh, disperse the crowds in the laundry room. Maybe someone will wanna do their laundry at 11 o'clock or at an odd hour when they think they won't encounter anybody. And so we, want, you know, we definitely recommend that boards do that. Um, another thing is we've put you know, a bottle of Clorox wipes or Lysol wipes in there. And we've just asked people to respectively, you know, respectfully wipe the machines after they use them. So that way we don't need to devote our building staff's attention to cleaning the laundry room every half an hour um, because it's not a good use of our resources. And as you said, it's not really fair to ask them to be constantly doing that and putting themselves at risk. And you could also, we've seen buildings that we have where they've, just like Trader Joe's would say, between the hours of nine and 10, it's for the elderly to come in and shop. That's or, a good idea. Uh, you know, have a, a maybe a two hour window where it's just for residents of a certain age group or that are worried. Um, I don't, I'm not discriminating against anybody, but anything that we could do to, you know, ease that burden on the Yeah, show. no, I haven't heard that as an idea, but that's a great suggestion. Mark it down and you can tell everybody it came from. What's your, what's your um, take on moves? You know, we have a lot of people, oh, I have to move out of the apartment. I want to move into the apartment during this crisis. Um, is that considered to be, in your opinion, an essential service? Well, so according to the governor, residential moves are essential. And so they, um, the residential moving companies can continue to work. You know, I feel a little bit differently about that. The movers are in and out of residential units and residential buildings um, and coming into close contact with one another um, every single day. And so they seem likely to be um, good transmitters of the virus. Um, so I guess my advice to um, buildings has varied depending on 
um, the layout of the building. Some buildings, it's possible if there's um, if there's uh, an elevator that they can devote um, only to moves, and if you don't need to walk through, like a service elevator, for example, and you don't need, you can come in a separate entrance of the building and not walk through the lobby and use only that elevator. Then I feel a little bit differently about allowing moves because it seems like the risk um, is minimized as much as possible. Alternatively, if you have a building where there's, for example, one elevator, then you're gonna need shareholders or unit owners are gonna need to be using the elevator during the time when the movers are coming. And I don't think it's fair to ask them to do that, especially if they're concerned about the health of the movers. Um, you know, uh, in cases where the movers can move without really affecting the shareholders, we've, um, you know, the buildings where that have that situation have been allowing moves, but one thing that we've recommended that is possible is asking the buyer and the seller to each pay an extra $250, and then that money goes to an extra cleaning fee of the elevator to make sure that, you know, of the elevator, the doorway, yeah. the door handles, you know, just to make sure that everything's sanitized after the move. We've also um, required moves to be completed within a certain number of hours. So, you know, all moves have to be completed within two hours just to free up the elevator and get the people in and out, you know, get the movers in and out. But it's a definite concern for buildings that have only one elevator or have elevators where you need to walk through the whole lobby. And a lot of them have stopped moves altogether. And whether or not there'll be liability from a seller who potentially loses a deal because we didn't allow the move. You know, only time will tell. And unfortunately, no one's going to get in front of a judge um, until after this is all over and the decision has been made. So we're not going to really have an answer to that until it's too late. But it's a tough decision and there's no great answer to that question. Would it help if we have the movers wearing PPE, wearing masks, wearing gloves, you know, disinfecting the elevators coming in, going out? Do you think that would help to offset some of the risk? Um, I definitely think it would help. A lot of the movers that I've seen have come themselves with PPE for their own um, protection. But, you know, one of the concerns is that PPE isn't always used right. Um, you know, that the masks are not protectant enough, that the gloves are not taken off frequently, um, and that they're used, you know, that the gloves are essentially contaminated because they're touching new things, they're touching old things, they're, you know, they're used for multiple moves because PPE is so limited, it's hard to get your hands on it. So um, while I definitely think it's a good idea to have the movers use it, you know, how effective it is, I can't tell you. Um, you brought up a good point about elevators and how they're used. And one of the memos that we sent out to a lot of buildings has, you know, with the social distancing being the way that it is, just trying to limit the amount of people in any elevator at any given time. So you are in the lobby and somebody wants to go up to floor seven, you're going to floor nine, maybe you just wait until uh, that goes up and comes back down so you can go up alone. This way you prevent having to be on top of somebody else. Um, yeah, that's a great idea. Um, another idea that I've seen is we've had um, painter's tape put down in the lobby six feet from the doorman so that people know to stay beyond the line and that way the doorman um, feel comfortable coming into work every day because um, as we all know, people go very close to the doorman, lean on the 
you know, lean on the uh, furniture and, and want to get close. And a lot of the doormen felt uncomfortable being in such close contact, but unfortunately they can't leave their posts. So we did that as a reminder um, to the shareholders to keep a safe distance. Um, I've seen a lot of reminders, which I agree is great advice to, you should only be in the elevator with your family if you see someone else in there, let them get out before you get in um, or ask if they mind if you get in. Of course, all of these things have to be that we're respectfully suggesting that you do it. None of these things can really be required, but I found that most of the residents are adhering to the you know, advice that we're giving. And I, I, protect themselves. I would hope that they don't want to get, get it either. Yeah. Um, so this is really something for you to kind of walk us through the, let's say we have a resident or a or the resident or a staff member who test positive, they alert management. Um, disclosing information to not, you know, what information do we disclose in those cases to residents and to other staff members? Because obviously there's privacy protections. Not that we're banned by HIPAA guidelines because we're not medical in nature, we are operating buildings, but let's say a resident tells us, oh, I've been tested positive, I'm self-quarantining. What do, we, what do we do? How do we get the word out that maybe somebody in your neighborhood, you know, in, in the building has tested positive without flagging who that person is or giving up any privacy? Right, exactly. So those are big concerns. And we've been advising our boards not to reveal any identifying information. So obviously, don't reveal the shareholder's name. We've also been saying not to reveal their unit number, and in most cases, not to even reveal the floor. I have one building that has four units per floor, and they were insisting upon revealing the floor number of somebody who had tested positive, and we said that that was even giving too much of a hint, right. um, and then we recommended that they did not reveal the floor number. What you want to do um, if you have somebody in your building who's tested positive is to let the other shareholders or unit owners know that there's somebody who tested positive. Um, but then just simply remind people to follow the CDC's regulations, um, you know, continue social distancing, wash your hands frequently, you know, stay in your apartment as much as possible. Um, because the truth is, you know, the guidelines would be very similar, even if you revealed, if, even if you revealed who had it, um, those are the, um, you know, those are the recommendations that they should be following regardless of they know if regardless of whether they know who was identified, the positive person was identified. But um, one of the thing that I want to point out is if you were to reveal the name of the person who tested positive, one concern of somebody else who may test positive in the future is that they may be nervous to come forward because they don't want their name to be revealed. And so the last thing a board wants to do is blow up somebody's spot and then not have the next person come forward because they're afraid of their name being revealed. Um, and from a management standpoint, you want to know who has it. And so you don't want to prevent people from feeling comfortable coming it's the forward. That same argument that I used to have about bed bugs. We That's right. Same thing. You know, tell us, we won't tell everybody who has it, but we have to do our inspections after bed bugs, you know, hits. Um, but if we tell everybody who had it, nobody's going to come forward. You know, it's the exact same thing with this. Okay, so we cover the residents. Right. Staff member gets sick, they have it, um, or they're assumed to have it. Not everybody's getting tested because test right now we're, we're filming this on April 9th and not every test is available for every person. So the staff 
will probably catch on who of the staff is out and are they having an issue. It may need to be disclosed in some form or fashion or not. You know, you tell me to the residents, you know, that your super who's been throughout the building for the last two weeks test positive. How do we handle that notification? Or do we not, or do we just say that they're out with, uh, you know, they're out ill and they'll be back as soon as possible? Well, one thing that we've done is asking the employee if they mind if we reveal their name. I mean, unlike other types of diseases, which could be embarrassing or which you might really not want people to know, this anybody can get and most people are going to get. And so it's not, uh, there's not as much of a social stigma as there is for other diseases. And so we've been asking employees if they would mind if we um, you know if we reveal their name or if they can give us a list of places they were in the building or people that they came into contact with just so that we can let those people know or just um, you know sanit extra sanitize those parts of the building um, we've made sure to get written consents from anybody who's agreed to allow us to reveal their name um, but every staff member that we've confronted and asked for their permission, they've given it so long as we can get in touch with them. In one or two cases, we had people in the hospital who, you know, were not in any position to consent. But most people want people to, what, what I have found in my experiences is most staff members want their fellow staff members to know because they want to try to limit the spread as much as possible. And so we haven't really gotten any pushback on getting a written consent to reveal their names. Okay. Um, all right, so let's move on. So, uh, emergency work is one thing. Non-emergency work is any renovation going on in an apartment, something that's cosmetic, that's cut off. Um, so we're only doing emergency work. Um, we're only doing emergency repairs too. So if somebody calls the office and says, "I have, you know, a slight drip that's not turning into a big issue," that's not considered to be an emergency right now. Um, but we're telling our residents that should a staff member have to go into the building or into the apartment rather, that we may ask that resident to leave the apartment during that visit to limit the face-to-face -face interaction and they'll also be wearing PPE. So um, that's just something that we're doing. We were talking a little bit before we started um, about the payroll protection programs and SBA loans. So there was a lot of confusion, I know, when that came out that said that it, you had a really in-depth, I stopped you, I know. <laughs> a minute in, I stopped you. I'm like, wait, don't, let's, we'll talk. I could talk forever, so sometimes I need people to stop me. <laughs> so do you want to walk us through um, the PPP loan and also whether or not buildings are eligible based on what we know today on April 9th? Yeah, absolutely. So under the CARES Act, a program called the PPP program, Paycheck, Payroll, Mark, help me out here, Payroll Protection Program. Payroll Protection Program was created. And this was to provide money to, um, to small businesses to allow them to keep their payroll, um, to keep their employees employed and to stay above float at, you know, above water at this time. Part of the issue with the program was that when the original PPP program was um, drafted, it was extremely broad. The only restrictions on who was eligible for funding um, were that you couldn't have over 500 employees and that you had to be a for-profit business. Um, 
a week later, or maybe not even a full week later, additional regulations came out and additional changes to the PPP application came out. And then suddenly there was a lot of confusion as to the eligibility of co-ops and condos to participate in this program. Part of the issue was that um, the Small Business Administration um, was appointed to be the people who distribute this money. And the SBA has a longstanding history of giving small business loans under existing regulations that they have in place. Now, what, what happened was for the PPP program, they decided to attach existing um, SBA regulations onto the PPP program, but they weren't an exact fit because they weren't custom tailored to the PPP program. So suddenly we have a program, now we have existing regulations which we're tacked on, and there are naturally gaps and conflicts um, and inconsistencies between the two documents because they weren't in, ever intended to be used together. And so now it made sure that all of the lawyers had a lot of work to do and all of the accountants trying to figure out whether or not any of these rules were even applicable. And so that's where we are now. Um, Part of the issue is on the application, it asks the applicant to certify that they're eligible for the loan. And your guess is as good as mine as to whether, <laughs> whether co-ops and condos are actually eligible. So a lot of lawyers are telling their clients, don't sign that certification because we don't know if you're eligible. And that's definitely the most conservative approach. The only problem with that is by time you know, Rebney and a lot of attorneys are writing um, to Congress people and trying to get clarity um, as to whether or not co-ops and condos are, in, are eligible for PPP loans. But the problem with waiting until the regulations are clarified is that there's a finite amount of money under the PPP program that's going to be allocated to small businesses. And so businesses have until June 30th or until the money runs out um, to apply. And our fear was that by, if, if our clients wait until the regulations are clarified, and they may never be clarified before June 30th, um, that the money may run out before they get a chance to apply. So one thing that our firm thought was a good idea was under the SBA regulations, it allows you to submit an eligibility statement or a waiver if you're not sure whether or not you're eligible. And so our recommendation to our clients who desperately wanted to apply now and not miss the opportunity for this funding was, if you want to apply now, apply with this eligibility statement, which we've drafted for our clients. Um, it basically states why under the regulations we think they should be included. Um, and then at the end, it asks for a waiver if it turns out that they're not included. And the last part of it is that it says that the certification in the application which states that you're certifying that you are eligible to apply for this is all subject to the terms of the eligibility statement that we're including in the application. So that insulates board members from liability in case it turns out that they're really not eligible for what they're applying for. Have you found clients have been applying for that in just in case? Well, so that's an interesting question, and our clients have been all over the map. We have, for example, I have one client where they have five, actually seven commercial tenants. And as you know, the um, governor has restricted, um, you know, retail, everyone that's not essential, their stores are closed. So we have a nail salon and we have um, a cosmetic store and a bunch of stores that are not open for business right now. And so they have no income coming in. And in turn, 
they're not paying their rent to the co-op. And so, and they pay a significant amount of rent. It's a, um, a strip of stores in Chelsea. And so the um, co-op's income is gonna be heavily affected by the fact that none of the commercial tenants are paying right now. And so they're in a much different position than most co-ops. Um, they really need the relief. And so for a building like that, they felt like they couldn't miss this opportunity. And if there was any money to be available, they wanted in. And so they are going to apply with the waiver. And this applies for a lot of buildings. A lot of co-ops own parking garages, which haven't been paying or own other retail stores and are in a similar position. There are also buildings where residents have stopped paying. And April 1st was the first payment date. Um, and you know where rent was due since this pandemic started. So maybe everybody, you know, maybe shareholders on April 1st are still able to pay, but as layoffs become more prevalent and as you know more and more companies are furloughing, we're gonna see it becoming more and more difficult for shareholders to pay their rent come May, come June. And I hope it doesn't go further than that. Um, we also have some buildings, you know, we have some very fancy buildings on Fifth Avenue or on Park Avenue who've told us that they felt ethically that it was, you know, just morally wrong for them to be applying for money, knowing that there's a finite amount of money to be distributed and that the money was only going to be distributed until it was exhausted. And they felt like a fancy building on Fifth Avenue didn't need the money as much as the pizza place down the street, which would be forced to close if they don't get a loan. So, you know, we've seen the gambit, some buildings ethically recusing themselves from applying, other buildings hot to apply and get the money as soon as possible. And so it really depends on your board's needs. Um, and that should be one of the guiding decisions. Other boards have simply said, listen, it's a very low, you know, most of the loan is going to be forgiven, um, if not all of it. And for that part that's not forgiven, it's a 1% interest rate, which is basically like free money. So if we can qualify, let's do it. Um, and so there's a large spectrum of what clients feel is appropriate, but each board needs to make that determination for themselves. So you kind of slid into my next topic, which is, um, on Look March at that. <laughs> and you don't even know. I'm so good. I'm that good. <laughs> on March 16th, all eviction proceedings were suspended in New York city. So basically right now, housing courts are operating only on an emergency or essential case basis. Um, and the, the template for that is basically landlord lockouts, uh, serious housing code violations, and requests for emergency repair orders. So based on that, that's an important discussion to have because there's non-payment, which some buildings are going to apply for a loan on. For And I, I'm going to get into like the, the loss of the business interruption loss also that we could file for, maybe. Um, but we're seeing a loss of revenue, potentially handcuffing a lot of buildings. It's a double-edged sword. You know, you want everybody to be able to live in their home, but you also have to run a building. You know, you have to pay your Absolutely. Um, um, so some, I saw, I'm on some Facebook groups, you know, in the New York City area. I won't single out some, but I, was, I saw some that were like, oh, great, you don't have to pay rent. But that's not true. You still have to pay rent because even though you can't get evicted, we could still- The rent is due. Rent is due. Yeah, I actually saw a bunch of those chat rooms too, and I wanted to weigh in, but I didn't want to be the Debbie Downer on the chain of everybody thrilled not to pay their rent. So I just read them and moved on. But yeah, that's absolutely right. The rent is still due. Right. Um, just because you can't be evicted doesn't mean you don't own it. And 
it doesn't mean you don't owe it. Right. Um, and, and so maybe. Doing, and you're still doing the paperwork to get to that housing court action when it starts up again. It's not that it's. That's right. And liens can still be filed um, against commercial, against cooperative, uh, sorry, condominium units. And so um, they don't get a free ride either. Yeah. So there's two important points about just COVID related. So landlords can't lock out or evict tenants for having COVID-19 and they can't ask you to leave. And you right. can't be discriminated against for fear of having it or being on home confinement or anything related to that. So you're adding that just, it's a discriminatory function. You, you're as a landlord, you're not allowed to do that to your tenant. So if you feel that you have COVID-19, if you've tested for it, nobody can knock you out of it. They can't move to evict you. They can't harass you. You, you have complete freedom to live in your apartment under the guidance of your doctor and home confinement and keeping social distance. Exactly. And when you look back on the governor's orders, on the executive orders and the order with which they came out, putting a freeze on evictions was one of the very first ones. And it's important because in order for all of the other relief to take place, there's a, um, you know, there's a, a lag in time. They can only get the money out to small businesses. Everybody can only apply so fast. They can only get funding so fast. And so preventing people from being evicted while they're getting, while the government's getting money distributed is very important because they want to make sure that people, you know, they want to make sure no matter what, that people are able to stay in their homes. And so if it takes a couple of months for government relief to be distributed, um, then the thought process is once people have money back in their pockets and businesses reopen, um, that they, it would be, it would be unfair if they had been evicted in that time. And so evictions won't, um, commence again until a lot of the government funding has been redistributed and until the um, restriction on operating businesses has been lifted. Make sure people have money. Do you want to um, talk about how we're kind of operating? Me and you were both working from our own separate homes, um, but board members are also working from home. They're not meeting in person anymore. They shouldn't be in the same room together. Um, I've gotten a lot of May is like heavy, heavy annual meeting season. But for you, right. for me, I mean, if you're, if for some reason all the offering plans were drawn up that the bylaws call for, like the second Tuesday in May, and that's, that's like right. every building. I don't get it. Um, so it's because they all copied the same form. I know, but there's only one of me, and there's only one of you. But that's right. Fifty buildings. It's a very busy Tuesday. It is. Um, so we're we're doing Zoom meetings with all of our boards. And I think it's going to change the landscape of how we operate in the future too, because we can get so much done. Yeah, I, it's I, great. I had a board meeting the other night and it was two of us from my, it was me and one of my property managers, you know, Phil. And yeah. we had a two hour board meeting with all the board members on zoom and they had questions and I'm not sitting there in the board meeting and can't, and my standard response is if I don't have the answer for you at the board meeting, I'll email you tomorrow. Every question was answered almost 30 seconds behind real time because I'm sitting at my computer. I can log into my software. I can look through my emails. I can pull up the PDF. So. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah. So it's it, also it, easier it, to get everybody on a Zoom call than it is to meet in person. Um, sometimes if people are traveling, people don't you know, necessarily live in the building as their primary residence. They live elsewhere. Everybody can call into a Zoom. So we've been getting much better attendance at board meetings. Also, also nobody has anything better to do. Yeah, but, right. <laughs> Sitting at home with nothing to do. 
Well, that, that definitely contributes to it. But, uh, but yeah, I have a feeling moving forward, Zoom conferencing will be um, used much more frequently for boards, especially boards that would meet less frequently because they couldn't get everybody in the same room. Yeah, and there were some security issues with Zoom, and the only two points of information that I gave to everybody is just password protect your Zoom conference, so people have to dial a password, and I'm recording exactly. this now. If, if you record the Zoom, record it to your computer. Don't record it to their cloud server, because that has a potential to also get hacked a lot more easily than, you know, it's going to my computer, and then I put it in my Dropbox, which is my Dropbox, and hopefully it's encrypted, and it won't have a problem. So what are we thinking about annual meetings that are going to be postponed where either maybe for smaller buildings or medium-sized buildings and may work to do it if, as long as it's laid out properly on Zoom or we can have everything sent out by postal mail and do mail-in ballots or we can have, you know, the different procedures than we were used to. But if it doesn't specifically say for a lot of, let's say the the 1960s, 1970 boards where, you know, the, the bylaws where it didn't, computers really were, didn't exist in this form or fashion. Like what's the status of saying, okay, let's do it digitally and let's, can we, I think the New York state law, didn't it switch late, late last year to allow just New York corporate business corporation law to allow uh, online meetings as a, as long as you could prove that the person is who they say they are, that they can go forward. That's right. So there's a size fits all answer to this because every building is different. Um, you know, it's very different to have a, um, a 1970s co-op with a thousand units in the middle of Brooklyn than it is to have a new construction 30 unit condo in Williamsburg. Um, you know, whereas a 30 unit new construction condo in Williamsburg you know, most likely the unit owners will all know how to use Zoom or will be able to call in for a conference call. In a, a thousand unit co-op that was built in the 60s or the 70s, elsewhere in Brooklyn, you know, it's not gonna be all young people. It's not gonna be all tech savvy people. It's not gonna be people who have the capacity to even call in for a conference call. And under the business corporations law, if you wanna have a meeting like that, everybody has to be able to hear one another. And so, um, our recommendation to all boards is to postpone. Um, and there's no reason why the annual meeting needs to be the second Tuesday in May, even though it says that in the bylaws. Um, courts have held that that really just is a general date um, and you should endeavor to do it as close to that as possible, but that there's no, um, you know, it doesn't exactly have to be on the date that it says in the bylaws. Um, and you know, for most boards delaying it and hopefully being able to do it in person in the fall is the best option because you're going to guarantee that everybody has an equal ability to attend the meeting. Um, and if you were to do it by Zoom conference, for example, people who didn't have computers or who didn't have um, smartphones may be prevented from joining. And that would be the worst case scenario, far worse than putting off a meeting and having it a couple months later. The business corporation law also has a provision for if a meeting is not held or if it's held and there is no quorum, which means that you can't vote for new directors. Um, and the language says that the existing directors will continue to serve until the next annual meeting at which, or the next meeting, I should say, 
where they're voted into, um, where they're voted onto the board again. So even though under the business corporation law, there should be an annual meeting held every 13 months, if they don't, if, if we're unable to do it, the existing board members, if they want to, will continue to serve until the next meeting where there, where there is a board vote. Okay, and what about by paper? If we're sending out an, a notice of annual meeting that doesn't state the time and the place, but it states the date of the vote with ballots and, uh, you know, if you want to run for the board, send a, a note to management by such and such date, and then a ballot goes out in advance of that date for people to fill in and mail in. Uh, maybe there's a ballot box in the building that, you know, people could have it stuffed, even though I wouldn't want to touch all of those ballots at this point, but are, is, is that a viable option for buildings to do it by paper? Well, so what we've been asking boards is, you know, what is your goal for having, wanting to have the meeting now? Um, if the goal is we really want an update on the financial status of the building, our recommendation is, okay, let's speak to the accountants about getting an audited financial statement and still circulating that regardless of the fact that we've postponed the annual meeting. Um, other boards have said we want to do it because it, it requires it under our bylaws, which we just discussed. Um, and then there are very, you know, there are a couple of boards that say, well, we want to vote for new directors. Um, and if that's the primary goal, then we can work out something. Again, it depends on what it says in your bylaws. Um, some boards are able to do it, um, you know, with nominations before the meeting. Um, it may be possible to amend bylaws or to pass a resolution, which would allow for that type of meeting. It's very building specific, so you have to speak to your lawyer about that. But if your uh, notice of meeting has very careful instructions, it's possible to do that. Have everybody nominate themselves before the meeting, then do another mailing, which would um, list all the nominees and have everybody fill out a proxy and we can vote by proxy. Um, but uh, another problem and a reason why I'm asking boards, you know, advising boards that they're better off postponing than doing it that way is a lot of people left the city. You know, people didn't want to be in multiple dwellings. And so they went to country houses or they're living with friends or parents or children outside of the city. And so you would hate to, you know, mail letters to everybody's apartment and have only 50% of the people be able to respond to it because they're actually in their apartments to receive the mail. So even, even mailing it may be an issue um, as far as getting quorum and getting access to the residents. Yeah, I could see where if you have a complete building email list that's verified and you could send out a Google form that has to be specifically signed by that email address, maybe they only have the link and it's verified, maybe that's a way for a ballot to go through. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I have a building, like I said, a, a small condo in Williamsburg where we have email addresses from everyone. And I think what we're going to do in that building is have everybody send us an email saying that if you receive, you know, we're going to give them language to send back to us, but it will say something to the effect of if you receive um, an email from this email address, it's I certify that it's me and you can accept that as a, a vote. Um, anything that comes in, it will be as good as if I had given it to you in person. Um, and then we, we are going to do it by emails. Another thing to note about proxies is even if you circulate a proxy by email or by um, mail, 
under the law, it, there's no requirement that that form be the proxy that's submitted back to you. So if somebody put into an email, um, you know, I nominate so-and-so as my proxy and here is my vote, even the email would be sufficient to constitute a proxy under the law. Mm. It's not necessary that they have a scanner and they scan back to you the exact form that you prepare. Yeah, and we have a lengthy history over directed proxies and non-directed proxies, general proxies. So yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we lots, do. Lots of types of proxies out there. Um, kind of jumping back to financials a little bit, the uh, mortgage protection, the CARES Act provided that a borrower with a federally backed mortgage can request a forbearance without penalties, fees, and interest for 180 days. And then on top of that, if it's if the borrower requests it, they could have another 180 days at the request uh, at that time. So we're really looking at a full year of federally backed mortgage payments being paused, right? Um, That's right. So that, that could be a benefit to the shareholders or to the you know, unit owners where they have the ability to stop their big mortgage payments and hopefully they can in return have a little bit of extra money freed up to pay their rent. No, no, not the rent because it's not a mortgage. Uh, common charges or their maintenance because um, there's no law right now that says you don't have to pay your, your maintenance or your common charges. That's up to the individual building if they want to work out payment plans with people. Um, but as we know, you can't evict somebody which ties into this whole project. Um, one thing that I think is interesting about that, though, which we forgot to mention when we discussed the PPP program, is that a lot of underlying mortgages on co-ops, and there are a couple of condos out there that have similar mortgages on the building, although it's um, uncommon, often those mortgages say that you need the consent of the lender before you get any further financing. And so before any building applies for a PPP loan, we've recommended that you have your lawyers look over the underlying mortgage documents to make sure that you're even eligible to apply for a PPP loan. And if it does require the lender's consent, that you go to the lender and get their written consent before you apply. That's a good point. I didn't think of that. That's really good. That's why I'm here. I got you. <laughs> I came up with like, uh, laundry room and elderly hours, and you came up with more hey. information, you know, bank permission. So we're even. There you uh, go. <laughs> the, Anna, uh, another thing, though, also about the PPP loans, that was really primarily for co-ops. For condos, sometimes um, the board's authority to act is restricted when it comes to mortgaging. So usually um, the board is only allowed to take a mortgage up to a certain amount before it requires unit owner consent. And so if you're in a condo and you want to apply for a PPP loan, you should check that provision of your bylaws to see if the board is authorized to get the loan. Um, and if it requires unit owner consent, then a consent form will have to go out and you'll have to get a certain, whatever the threshold is, usually um, two thirds of the unit owners to vote in favor uh, of getting the loan before the board can even apply for it. Right. Um, the tax protests, which are usually due by March 24th, uh, those were extended now. Those are the tax tertiary proceedings, like the TC 101 forms that we, we fill out um, with attorneys to protest the tax valuation on the buildings. That was now extended till 30 days after the New York State of Emergency ends. So that's another benefit to buildings right now, having a little bit more time to, you know, get. Yeah, that's great. 
And also virtual notaries. Have you guys been doing a lot of virtual notarization? So I'm about to do my first virtual notarization this evening. Thank you for asking. I was just reading the regulations to make sure I didn't mess it up. What do you have? Um, you just have to see the person or hear the person, right? Yeah. Do you care to listen to like uh, non-essential and essential construction on buildings and have that stop? Do you want to hang out for a little bit? I'm sure you'll have other things. I got nowhere to go. <laughs> True. Uh, I have you for the next, like, what, two months? Yes. Uh, <laughs> so uh, state executive order 202.6 and then the Empire State Development Corporation uh, guidance say that non-essential construction suspended for the duration of the emergency. And the only exceptions to that would be construction needed to protect the health and safety of the occupants, uh, construction work that's necessary to make a site safe in advance of a suspension, uh, construction work that's limited to a single worker and construction related to utilities or hospital and healthcare facilities, transitional and affordable housing. So FISP, which is the facade inspection safe, uh, safety protocol, that's the, it used to be local law 11, now it's FISP program. Um, that's considered to be essential since it deals with a lot of unsafe conditions and, you know, repairs and maintenance of the outside of the building and having bridging up and, you know, protecting the general public and the residents. So, um, that kind of leads me into another program that was extended, which is the, it's an amnesty program for the FISP for, we're right now in my last, uh, podcast number 24 was a whole FISP, uh, with an architect having, they came in and we went over it, but, uh, we're in sub, we're in cycle 9A right now. And so the DOB is saying that there's amnesty for people that, for buildings that didn't file their cycle eight buildings which was supposed to have been the last subcycle C of eight ended uh, February 21st of 2020. So if you didn't file and now you're available to file without penalty, but there's still going to be a filing fee uh, with that report. And also um, it doesn't waive any late fees, civil penalties or ECB fines for not filing the report. And all of those must be paid, including any prior cycles penalties prior to or at the time of the amnesty uh, program filing. So reports, they must adhere. There's new uh, laws that came out in cycle nine. So those cycle eight repairs that weren't filed that are now gonna be filed have to now uh, include the cycle nine rules, um, which are additional hands-on inspections for every 60 foot interval of street and public right of way facing facades, probe investigations along every 60 foot interval, interval of cavity wall facades, new and increased civil penalties and the display of facade condition certificates in building lobbies. So just like the, uh, the restaurants have the, the letter grades, we're moving, yeah. yeah, we're moving towards that with energy grades that comes up this year. And then I guess we're also going to be in cycle nine putting how safe is your building? You know, have you filed safe? Um, there's also new penalties in cycle nine. We went over that, but failure to file is uh, now $5,000. I think it used to be a thousand dollars. The late fees are $1,000 per month. Um, unsafe conditions that are not corrected are also $1,000 a month. So the city is getting very serious about uh, making sure that everybody files their safety uh, inspections on time. So well, there are a lot of, after that woman was killed near Times Square um, earlier, a couple months ago, yeah. um, they've changed a lot of the FISP regulations. Now you need to have bridging up, even if it's just an inspection. They're really doing a lot to make sure that that doesn't happen again. The city is very good at being reactive. They are very good at being reactive. Yes. 
Anytime there's something that happens. And Anytime somebody dies and it's on the front page of the post. Yeah, completely. They act promptly. I can, I can name probably five local laws that came out in the last three years just based on that. Like gas stove oh, yeah. covers, um, increased inspections, the, the gas inspections, the facade inspection. I mean, you name it, they're going to Absolutely. Go. Is there anything else? Oh, so insurance. The last thing we could cover is like, we're wondering about, and it's so new, we don't know what's going to be covered, what's not going to be covered. Um, so this comes from McCool Risk um, Solutions, and I've had Ed McCool. Do you know Ed McCool? Yeah. Yeah, so I've had him on a few, uh, maybe like two or three times on the podcast. On the videos alone, he's, he's done a few with me. So I asked him to send me over some information. Is that a cheap shot at me because this is my first one? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I asked him to kind of give me some information. We preemptively filed for business interruption claims for all of our clients, um, not knowing if we would be able, just like you said before, like the, the revenue that's, I have a few buildings that have salons or restaurants. Um, I have a soul cycle in one of my buildings that's renting space from the condo. What in Soho, what's gonna happen with that? Are they gonna be able to pay their, their rent? You know, are they gonna go under? They're taking the SBA loans because they're, they have the ability to, are those gonna be advanced to them? We're sitting out. We don't know. Like there's right, been a lot sure. of um, So right now we're we've put in the the portfolio wide business interruption. I had a call with an adjuster today from one of the carriers that was saying, as of now, the COVID um, is not a covered loss. As of now, it could change. So we've put them on notice in the case that that law changes, and we're just being proactive to. Yeah, I definitely think being proactive in this case was the move. Um, you know, if there's going to be insurance proceeds to be had, you want to make sure that you're in line to get them. Um, from my understanding about business interruption um, proceeds, that they're only available in the case of a casualty, or at least this is what my insurance person told me, and that the pandemic is not going to be defined the same way as a casualty, which would mean, um, you know, a hurricane, um, some other you know, a blizzard, something like that, which would actually prevent the business um, from operating. I mean, it seems to me like this is exactly what it was intended to cover, an executive order preventing a business from operating. To me, that sounds like it was ripe for this type of insurance, but the insurance people, clearly, because they don't want to pay out the claims, are taking a different approach. So we'll see how that one comes down. I, I keep following that because I'm very interested to hear. Um, but it was definitely a good call to have all of your buildings, um, you know, file now. Thank you. <laughs> um, workman's compensation, uh, they're saying typically for a work worker's compensation policy to cover a claim, the loss must arise out of the course of employment. So when it comes to COVID, it's going to be challenging to claim that is, you know, uh, a covered uh, loss. Um, general, general liability, a, a GL policy on subsequent uh, litigation, it might play out if customers can verifiably link their illnesses directly with employee illnesses. For example, property owners could be sued for negligence if you fail to keep your building clean and virus-free by taking proper steps to disinfect the building, leading to residents getting sick. Um, the commercial general liability policy may defend such a lawsuit, but after the SARS outbreak in 2003, many carriers added a communicable disease exclusion, which could exclude, ex could exclude coverage. 
Again, we're saying mm. reactive. You know, the city goes. Right. Again, reactive. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't usually read the insurance policies. Um, I'm just sort of aware of what type of coverage we have. And then any questions, I bump it to the insurance broker to help me out because those policies are so confusing. So I didn't know that um, since SARS. That's interesting and not surprising at all. Yeah. So they really reactive by closing the services. I was saying it was yeah, the of course. New York, which is expanding the, you know, the rights. Um, environmental and pollution policy. So environmental insurance policies may be designed to include affirmative cleanup, disinfection, and decontamination coverage. Under pollution policies, disinfection expenses are specifically defined and coverage is only provided for the properties which are scheduled to an insurance policy. Additionally, policies may require an order from a local, state, or federal governmental, governmental or public health agency or entity to disinfect the property in order to trigger coverage. Even so, there may be limitations to available coverage for COVID-19 depending on specific policy wording. Uh, the federal government's increasing the amount of small business loans available to help companies weather the COVID-19 storm. Uh, so that could be also an out there. Um, so that, that's basically the major um, insurance information that we got from Ed McCool over at McCool Risk. So thank him for coming on so many times and being available whenever I need him and just giving so much information, just like you. Uh, <laughs> but you've spent so much more time we're at almost an hour, probably. Right. So I get credit for two podcasts. Yeah, Let it be credit. known. Double credit. A smiley face on your report card. Oh, thank you. Do you think we covered everything? We, we did a lot. Oh, I'm exhausted from this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we covered everything. I mean, a lot of the issues that we've been seeing are building specific. And so it's important to um, check your corporate documents and make sure you're doing everything that complies. Um, and again, boards should be recording any actions that they're taking, um, you know, through formal resolutions and including those in the minutes, making sure that um, corporate policy doesn't fall by the wayside, even though these times are crazy. Um, and then I guess we'll continue to monitor the situation. I mean, on the PPP loans, um, there's a 15 day comments period where um, lawyers and accountants and any Know, management companies, anybody who wants can comment on it and ask for clarifications. And so I'm sure over the next week or two, we're going to be seeing additional regulations that help clarify some of the discrepancies in the law. So we'll continue to give you updates. Um, our firm continues to write advisories and post them. We have a, a COVID-19 resource center on our firm's website, which is armstrongtuesdale.com. We continue to write memos as do the other uh, departments, the employment department and uh, trademark law, it's, it's, it's the pandemic's affecting everybody. So it's interesting to see all the other advisories that come out. Um, but yeah, I think this was a pretty comprehensive covering of as much COVID as anyone else can handle. I can't even watch the news anymore. It's, too much. it's, it's depressing and it's anxiety inducing. It is, it is. Um, but a lot of people have questions. So I think we did a good job covering things. Thanks for inviting me on. Thanks for having me, or thanks for coming on. What's thanks for phone, having me. Yeah, what's your phone number for everybody listening, or do you want to give out your email address or both? Uh, I will give out both. Okay. Uh, my email address is jsector, which is S-C-H-E-C-H-T-E-R at A-T-L-L-P.com. And if you want to call me, my phone number is 212 
209-4406. Or you can email Mark and he knows where to find me if you missed any of that. But thanks everybody for listening. Thanks Mark for having me. I Next time I, I won't I, report live from my living room in a sweatshirt. And I forgot to give out the, the podcast email address in the beginning. So if anybody's listening still, but it's NYC, <laughs> NYC at gmail.com. Um, NYC real estate podcast at gmail.com. And this was actually fun. It was a terrible subject, but I, it's I always feel, fun with you, Mark. I feel like I learned something today. So well, I learned something about insurance. So thanks for that. No problem. So we'll see you again. Absolutely.